we get really caught up in our, our bubbles, right? Hospital midwife versus birth center midwife versus home midwife. And I think if we all started thinking about how do you support birth wherever you are environment-wise, what are all the things you can do? You will see that many of them are actually quite similar. Hi, my name is Augustine Colebrook, and I'm the principal at Midwifery Wisdom Collective. I speak on this podcast about big picture, political issues, and the future of our profession. Hey, y'all. I am Jamara, and I'm a midwife. I'm also a birth justice activist. And this season, I am looking forward to sharing stories of Black midwives and the communities they serve. Hello, beloved birth community. I'm Angela Love nurse midwife since 2004, preceptor, and mother. I have a home birth practice called Midwife Love and a national telehealth practice called Midwife Rx. My mission is to keep birth choices available and to educate the next generation of midwives for our daughters and grandchildren. Matriarchy now. I'm Layla Wyatt. I get to share with you the voices of student midwives from across the country and beyond. This season, we focus on those students who just graduated, are about to sit for the NARM, or did yesterday, and we get tips and tricks for you for what happens at the end of the student midwife journey. Thank you for joining. I'm so excited to see you and meet you in person. You're doing amazing things. Welcome to the Midwifery Wisdom Podcast, and I'm just so excited to have you as a guest. And I'm going to have you introduce yourself so I don't miss anything because you've got quite a lot of things that you have done, are doing, and we want to hear about all of them. So why don't you tell us who you are, where you are, what you're all about? Okay, great. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'll do, I'll just start with a brief introduction and then you can kind okay. of tease out which way you want to go. I feel like there's okay, great. Great. sometimes it's just, you know, rabbit hole after rabbit hole, but my name is Jamie yes. I am a certified nurse midwife. I currently live in Virginia. We are a military family though. So we are constantly moving and that just adds to the adventure. I've been a certified nurse midwife for about eight years. Uh, I've always done labor and delivery though. So I started out in high-risk labor and delivery at a big hospital in Dallas, Texas called Parkland, which is kind of one of the big meccas of a bunch of research, but it was a beautiful place for me to start because they are yeah. so high intervention. I mean, they broke bags of water two centimeters and then they would put internals in. Uh, physiologic birth was just not a thing there, but that was my first place where I was exposed to midwives. They have midwives that run, well, ran, I haven't worked there, I should say, since um, 20... Nope. Nope. Wrong year. 2008. It's been a while. Okay. Good. And, uh, but those midwives were amazing. And they just, they took these yes. women in. Many of them had come across the border to have their babies, which is very common in Texas at that time. And, you know, of the Hispanic culture, a lot of times they labor very, very quickly. And, you know, they have kind of that squat and that grunt they do. And the baby comes out and arrives. And, and the midwives were just so supportive of that in that environment of higher intervention. And so that was my first place to say, oh, this is a midwife. I had no idea what a midwife was. Even in nursing school, I don't, I don't think I ever saw a midwife where I did my clinicals for obstetrics. And I knew very quickly I wanted to go back to nurse practitioner school, didn't know which way. And I only knew I really liked fast paced environments where you just have to know your stuff. And so I was drawn to emergency yeah. room for labor and delivery. And lo and behold, labor and delivery offered me a job first. And when you come out of nursing school, you're constantly thinking like, how am I going to pay my rent? Right. I finally like passed my boards. Right. Right. Like now I had to actually pay the bills. So I took, I took the job just because it was first offered and it just, it was, you know, God's plan type of thing and fell in love with it. And then still sat on the fence for a while and said, okay, nurse practitioner, what does that mean for me? Do I want to do family? I love the whole scope of family practice. Uh, and then kind of thought like, okay, well, what about midwifery? Like I can do a lot of family practice in midwifery, but I can do the birth side too. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately, uh, mm -hmm. when Colorado and did that. And then I actually came out and started my midwifery career in the Air Force. So I, I was looking for a way. And what was your program? What program did you do in Colorado? I did University of Colorado. Uh, okay. 
great. I've heard good things. Yep. Uh Uh-huh. It's a great program. Uh, One of the reasons I'll just plug the program really quick. I have no affiliations with it other than I'm an alumni, Yeah. but they, the midwifery practices there that the program puts their students into are outstanding. They're doing, uh, I think they're still doing water birth. Um, They're, they're doing, you know, nitrous in the tub, you know, fentanyl options were given in the tub too, which I'm just like, this is so great. Like you're doing water, but there's supplemental things too, that you just don't see in the hospitals a lot. And just many, many, many midwives in the area. So not an area where you're struggling to get clinical experience. You're getting great clinical experience. You're getting lots of it. And you come out as a really strong midwife. Uh, so anyways, somewhere in there, I, I did not want to take out loans for school. I really was working hard to just pay cash as I went. And then at some point, somebody had plugged the military as an option to help pick up some of that burden. So I interviewed. And at that time, my husband was also in the military. And he was like, no, don't join the military. Don't join the military. And so we just, we came to a place where we were like, no, 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 we think this is going to be okay. And in retrospect, I would say it was one of the best decisions I ever did. I don't know how many military midwives have been on the podcast, but the military. We've had a couple. Yeah. It's amazing. It's an interesting program. Mm -hmm. so interesting. I was mil- I was a military wife myself, so I have a little insight into what the world is like. It's it's a fascinating world. It's a whole nother culture. Yes. The culture is different. The language is different. There are acronyms yep. used that you never hear outside of yep. the military. But the military, kudos to them. They have figured something out. And that is the value of a nurse practitioner. So advanced mm-hmm. practitioners, mm-hmm. whatever language you're wanting to use, they let you practice full scope. They do not have hindrances on your licenses and certifications. You come in and they look at your degree and they say, great, we expect you to practice to that 110%. And so coming in as a little baby midwife, that was great. Like I wasn't around, you know, calling backups all the time and running things by physicians. You kind of like learn to tread your water really, really quickly. Uh, But as a foundation for practice, it was amazing. Amazing. Amazing, amazing. So I did that. And where Uh, were you stationed? We have been stationed um, a variety of places, but as a midwife, my first assignment was here in Virginia and then Alaska for three years, which was amazing. Yes. Recommend it for anybody that's looking for just a good travel destination. Yes. Don't go in January. It's very cold and dark. (laughs) You can see the Northern lights and they're just majestic. True, true, true. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then we came back to Virginia. So I'm hoping we have you know, a couple more assignments on the horizon, but I am no longer in the military. I got out of the military in 2021. And then right now I just practice part-time full scope midwifery at a local, a local practice here. Awesome. Awesome. Well, what a journey. And through this uh, experience of meeting, well, first of all, seeing very highly interventive birth juxtaposed to really normal birth um then it led you to midwifery now you've seen midwifery in multiple areas multiple places right and it led you to become really passionate about the fact that we really need more midwives yes right yeah so i started and so you started a blog in 2000 2019 right so tell us about this blog so the blog is a midwife nation and it came out of this place where at the end of my work day, there was a lot going on in my head. How do we grow the profession? How do we grow preceptors? How do I tell women about midwifery? How do I explain the different type of midwives? How do you explain the different places you can birth? How do I get the resources into hands of women that don't have access to midwives? right? What can midwifery care provide if you actually don't have a midwife in your community or you live in a very rural place, you're in what they call the obstetric deserts, right? And mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. where the blog came from. It now functions on a platform of getting more resources and education into the hands of women and midwives, right? What can I do mm-hmm. to help you front lines, right? Can I help you screen for depression and anxiety better by saying these three great tools are out there download these, use these at your visits, right? Basically be very transparent about what I'm doing in practice, which I don't think we always do. Um, No, it's missing. There's been this hoarding of information, which has really been the detriment to the profession. Agreed. hundred percent. 
Yes. Yes. Especially amongst Mm -hmm. different types of midwives. So indeed. Yes. That was going to be another thing I wanted to ask you about. Why do you think there's so much animosity between the CNM and the CPM world? Oh, that's such a heavy question. I I know. Sorry. I just threw you in the deep end. (laughs) No, I'll take it. I'll take it. I love, I love really really pointed questions. My husband is the king of answering the best questions in the world. So I've had many, many hours of practice. I would say there's a couple different things. One, our training pathways are very, very different. And I think Mm -hmm. the point of contention, a lot of it comes down to the, the nursing degree and how the nursing profession as a whole, I mean, to me, mind you, like I have a bachelor's of science in nursing. And I just told you, I did not intend to go to nursing school to be a midwife. So I'm one of those nurses that decided that after I had my bachelor's, I think some people say, you don't need this degree to do this. And some people get really, really hung up on that fact. And that is just a fact of our education system. And I think I listen to many podcasts and interviews and even read some books on the system. I don't have a lot of hope we're going to revamp the system in the United States. I would love to say we could revamp it to something similar to the NHS in the United Kingdom, how they do. Although the NHS is currently failing, like midwives are leaving that in droves. Like it's currently in crisis. So I don't think there is, I mean, maybe the, maybe the New Zealand model. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think, yeah. Sweden. Uh, but Sweden doesn't have two types of midwives. Sweden only has nurse midwives. So yeah, it's an interesting journey. Yeah. I, I don't think there's a good model yet. Right. But mm. I think a lot of it too, right? So we have this contention point of you have to have this specific set of training and some people think one is better than the other. I think it really depends on the student or the midwife. I think it depends on the experience you're bringing. I've had students that are really, really strong and they have no labor experience and really like very minimal baby or birth experience. And they're just really passionate. And they, that passion makes up for maybe a skill set that they could have picked up. And I have some that come in that have a lot of experience and they just, maybe it's not their calling. Um, and I must, I'm assuming that's probably the same too for the, the home birth side, which I will say like, just Claymar, I just had a home birth two months ago. Congratulations. Um, I saw your little baby on your Instagram. So great. Congratulations. So I, I really feel that I have this experience now that honors this option that I really didn't know a lot about. And so I've really looked at that lens of, okay, how can we help midwifery understand each other better so we can stop the finger pointing and stop instantly putting up defenses and say, we're actually all on the same team. Team midwifery, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so I think a lot about that on the blog platform and say, okay, what what can I do to promote all types of midwives? Um, I just had a, a former patient actually who sent me her birth stories and she had an OBGYN, a CNM, and then she had um, a CM, uh, or not a CM, um, uh, a CPM. I... Mm-hmm like early morning for you on the east coast well and it's like uh, alphabet soup of letters so you know midwifery is crazy yes and just just reading through her stories you could just see where the gaps are and and she's an educated client right and so then I think okay well somebody who's not educated how do I tell this and even in my own practice I'll show up and our midwives manage our floor which is very high risk and low risk very busy and they'll say, wait, we're not going to see the doctor. And usually I'll say, mm. absolutely can have the doctor come to the bedside. You know, we always have one on call in our practice. And usually the nurse is like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you want the midwife managing. So I think, you That's know, the- good. you've got an advocate in the system. That's good. And, and really like the midwives have just changed how labor and delivery functions on our unit, you know, less cervical. That's amazing. And it's okay to get up and walk and let's get people in the shower and walking around the unit. And I think too, the other struggle with midwifery is we get really caught up in our, our bubbles, right? Hospital midwife versus birth center midwife versus home midwife. And I think if we all started thinking about how do you support birth wherever you are environment wise, what are all the things you can do? You will see that many of them are actually quite similar. So blog, yeah. I, blog I love that. Love that. 
of that, you know, passion. Yeah, some of my best friends are CNMs. And when we're together and talking birth, there's there's not, there's no difference, right? Like we're midwives. But I think that the that the forces outside of midwifery continue to divide us. And I think it's by design. That's my really radical concept. Oh no, because if we really (laughs) you know your history, right? They always say like you need to study history so don't repeat it. And right. Well, I mean, look at how birth went into the hospitals in the 50s. That was designed to train residents. And what it did was take away birth from the people that were attending birth out in the community. You're just, you're wise. Well, if they keep us divided, they keep us separate and then we can't multiply. You and I both feel like that needs to change. I love what you're doing. Um, But there's so much politics and there's so much really drama, right? We have plenty of drama in the community-based midwifery scene. Tell us about some of the real challenges in the hospital-based midwifery scene. Uh, We, like I, I have been... Uh, most of my career has been in the in the community setting. I've only worked in the hospital setting out of the U.S. Um, uh, in, in other countries. So, all, most of us who work in the community setting, we have an idea about what it's like in the hospital to be an in-hospital midwife. But but many of us haven't ever been there, right? There's very few CNMs working in the community setting, and most CPMs are only in the hospital setting as doulas or as transports, and so. As someone who's actively and has been in the hospital setting, trying to enact change in many ways, what's the scene like? What's it like for you? Or maybe how is it different now that you know, you're in a practice that you like compared to a challenging place? I don't know, I just think a window into that world would be, would be helpful. You know, like here, let me give you an example. One of the, um, one of the preconceptions notions of community-based midwives is that hospital-based midwives only spend, you know, 15 minutes with each client in prenatals or that they have a call schedule similar to a group practice OB practice and that they're only there at the end and they take call at home and things like that. Are these things that you do? Can you call your own shots? Can you stay longer with patients? Like, are you bound by these insurance guidelines that we hear about? Tell me, tell me more about it. Yeah. So I, um, I think like just to kind of work backwards one, I am not typically practicing to anything insurance related. So, which is, it's very, very freeing when I came out of the military, right. Military, like, you know, everything 100% covered. However, that actually works behind the scenes. I don't know. Um, but right. We don't think in the military, I can't order this test because the military is not going to cover it. You ordered it. It was covered. End of story. I transferred out into the civilian world, right outside of the military. And I had a fear that that was going to be something that I couldn't do. And I've just found that that's not the case. And I think a lot of that is a testament to Medicaid is starting to reimburse for a lot of things that they didn't. And that's about 50% of our population. And we're finding that, you know, the basics of what you need for prenatal care, that's covered. As far as the ins and outs, I personally have about, um, 20 minutes. I think most of my appointments are 20 minute appointments and that's your well woman, your vaginitis, your OB, your menopause appointment. I personally strive to spend that full 20 minutes with the patient. So if you're on my schedule for that 20 minutes, you get 20 minutes of my time. Now, if it takes me 20 more minutes to chart your note, that's my time on the backside. And we do bill for that, but it's, it's one of those things where the patient deserves every moment of that time. In the hospital, I'll say, I am known for just sitting in the patient rooms. There's rocking chairs in our rooms and I will just sit there and, and talk to them. Um, I do a lot of labor support. A lot of that is because we have very new nurses on our unit and some of them have never seen midwifery care. So they need to see what peanut ball positions we can do. Uh, there's a lot of second stage report, second stage support. When our patients are pushing, I like to be in there. I don't like to be the person that's called in right when the head is crowning. Um, A lot of that is because there's some aggressive perineal massage that might be done by a member of the team. And I'm usually just like, hands off, hands off, right? It'll stretch. It's either going to stretch or tear. They always do. Uh, But also to encourage the woman, you know, on admission, this is one of my big things. I always tell them you can birth in whatever position you want especially if you do not have an epidural. Now, if you need a repair, you're going to have to get back in the bed. 
but uh-huh. you want to have your baby standing in the shower. That's fine. I, I mean, we can catch babies in any position. I always tell them I'll kind of just like follow you around like a catcher's mitt. And then when you decide you're going to squat and this is the place I'll be there. Um, and I think women need to hear that. And I think that that's a, a myth maybe, and maybe not all midwives offer that. I think that depends too on your epidural rates and things like that. But I would say our epidural rates about 70%, but a third of my women are birthing unmedicated. I do a lot of hands and knees birth. And there's a lot of education I do about that. If you tell me you want to have an unmedicated birth, I instantly am like, what do you know about hands and knees? Like during labor uh-huh. or transition. Um, and I have a lot of women that they, they birth in that position and they are extremely pleased with their birth. And a lot of times they'll mm-hmm. reach out. Mm-hmm. The other thing I love is, um, and I offer this too in the hospital frequently is is there a, a member of the family that wants to catch the baby? And right, you're just standing there supervising them. But I can't tell you how many dads are absolutely delighted. And you know, they're here for maybe their fourth birth and nobody's ever offered that. Um, Wonderful. Some, some grandmas too. I, I'll never forget this one grandma. Here's your birth story. I'll do, I'll just do the one birth story, right? Okay. Tell me, tell me, tell me. So this grandma, she was a nurse in our system and just super excited. And you could, I could just tell she was itching to get in there. And I said, do you want to catch the baby? And she was like, I can do that. And I said, yeah. So, you know, baby comes out very quickly. There's a new goal. Um, and I don't, I don't reduce new goals. We almost always somersault through them. And so the baby came out and there were quite a few new goals. And I said, you hold the baby for one second. And I was like, one, two, three, four, it was a four new goal. And the grandma was like, oh my gosh. And I was like, you did so great. Now give the baby to the mom. So it worked out perfect. Cause like how <laughs> the baby and I was able to just unwrap it so fast. Beautiful. The baby was so tiny, but it's just stuff like that, that we have these stigmas, like only the midwife can attend the birth. I'm like, no, you are, you know, you're not even asking the mama what her birth plan is. And then, okay. The other things, let's see, we talked about, you definitely have more time with the patient. I specifically try to spend more time in the clinic with them. Uh, postpartum, something that I'm really passionate about is postpartum care. And I try to do what I call double postpartum rounding. And that is where I go at nighttime to see all of our patients. And we have a a busy practice. So it is not uncommon for us to see 10 to 20 postpartum clients and couplets in just one shift. So I will go see them at night. And a lot of times there's no note documentation. It is a courtesy visit. Hi, how are you doing? Let's review your vital signs. Do you have an idea of your plans for discharge? Do you understand how to take your medicine? Do you understand who you can call? These are your postpartum birth warning signs. Um, contraception is a big topic during that time, right? Um, and then kind of coordinating that care. And then I usually see them eight hours later. I always tell them, I'll see you in about eight hours. Um, and that's usually their discharge around the next morning. And it's just it's, it's always a bit of a quicker round, but I just spent maybe 20 or 30 minutes with them the night before to say, hi, how are you doing? Do you have any questions and do that care coordination? But I think those extra eyes on them in the hospital and all that extra education sets them up for success once we discharge them. Cause you Beautiful. know, most of them just get that postpartum appointment at six to eight weeks. Even if I say like, I'd like to see you for a mood check and we need to do blood pressure checks and you know, whatever that early follow-up might be, you know, they don't, they don't always come to those visits, but you know, we offer what we yeah. That's beautiful. I love that. And I, I bet it means the world to them because the hospital can be kind of a lonely, kind of scary place for people, especially if they didn't get the birth that they wanted, probably seeing a familiar face is really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I always think too, is we have we have to count them, seven, seven certified nurse midwives on our team. And we are doing a high percentage of the births in our practice, right? Aside from people that might need a primary C-section or have a scheduled C-section, right? The midwives are attending all of the births. So it's always an opportunity to plug midwifery. And I always say, oh, it was so great that you were, I'll make up a name, Susan was there for your birth. You know, tell me, tell me about your birth, right? Even though it just happened for them, it's this, this most yeah. of them, right? They either haven't heard of a midwife, even in our practice, it's very busy. They might not have seen one of the midwives in clinic. And we are just the first time that they've seen somebody in the hospital. So explaining again, that role. And I always tell people, if you, if you loved your midwife, go find a midwife for your other care, uh, you know, your other yeah. birth or 
your menopause. That's beautiful. Or whatever it is. Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, so Jamie, you just had a home birth and I'm sure that decision didn't come easily. You have four kiddos. Is that right? Four. They're little. Yeah. Four kiddos. Yeah. And I bet that a home birth was sort of something that grew on you over time. Tell us about how you made that choice. It's a bit of a longer story, but I'll get, I'll get you there. We're we're here for it. We're here for (laughs) that. The short version is the first baby should have been a home birth. That's really the conclusion I've come to. The first baby should have been a home birth. And that babe, that was my daughter who's now six. She was not because my, my husband really didn't want to be out of the hospital environment. Going to the hospital in his mind was a safe place. And I didn't have enough exposure to home birth and birth centers in my midwifery training to that point to really have a strong opinion otherwise. And I was planning an unmedicated birth and I was fine doing that in the hospital. Like I knew I was gonna go to the hospital. I was gonna labor at home as long as possible. And that's essentially what happened. I went into labor, showed up at the hospital at seven centimeters. A couple hours later, my daughter was born unmedicated. It was fine. And then we moved to Alaska. I moved there in almost the third trimester of my second pregnancy. And typically in the military, you just, you birth at the hospital that you are working at just by nature of in an obstetric team, right? I was going to birth at the hospitals I worked at. So I planned essentially the same thing. I was going to show up in late labor and have a baby very quickly and a birth at home. At that time too, we lived on base, which that's a whole nother rabbit hole to go down birthing on base. I I had a home birth on base. I know how hard it is. (laughs) Oh, I mean, the, the unofficial answer is nobody knows if you don't tell anybody. Um, Exactly. But if you go late, see, I went three weeks late and I wouldn't go get induced. And my husband's superiors knew about it and they threatened to take a stripe if he didn't force me to go. And bless his heart. He was like, then go ahead. I, I, there's no way I'm going to fight with my wife. <laughs> so oh, oh. I did end up having a home birth, but it was a drama. I, uh, he was called into uniform meetings. It was this whole thing. <laughs> I know. I know all about that. Oh, that's such a wise partner you had though, because I, I feel like that should be the response is, oh, I'm not going head to toe with my partner on this. Like if she- they didn't, they backed off when he was like, <laughs> but yeah, drama, drama, drama. Okay. So that birth, um, my water broke. I was a second time mama. So labor, it was very quick. I ended up birthing in uh, a tub that was kind of a standing sitting tub where you had this big door that closes, but you could be fairly submerged in water. And it was what I would call, I hate to use the word traumatic birth, but that is the best thing to describe what happened. So I told no, them that's real. Don't hate that. If it's real, that's what it was. Yeah. Well, I, I look back and like, to me, the birth was wonderful. It's the outcome of the birth that has not been as wonderful. So I um, felt the urge to push. I told my husband, go get the nurse. They said, Oh, we have to drain the tub. So they're like draining the tub as fast as possible. I'm standing up. Oh my God. So stupid. (laughs) Okay. You should have just birthed your baby in the water. Like should have just like pushed it out, but you know how labor is. It's so primal, whether you training or not, it's so primal in those moments right before the birth. And so I did the primal like, ah, and my baby's head came out. And I remember being like, okay, I felt the relief of the head, but the baby is obviously still in my pelvis. And um, the colleague that was there was an OBGYN. And I was like, is the baby's head out? Is the baby's head out? And the nurse was like, no, 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 not quite yet. Give us one more push. So I give like one more push and feel the relief. And you're still standing? Still standing. And I um, sat down immediately after I felt the baby come out because we had a bench built in the tub. And then I was so excited because it was a surprise. We did a surprise gender for our first two. The baby was on the floor. And so I reached down to pick up the floor. See, it's a boy. I'm so delighted. I'm like, look at my husband. I'm like, take a picture, right? That whole like first 90 seconds, the baby's here. And then I said, was the baby on the floor? And the nurse, bless her, I will never forget her response. She goes, oh, just for a second, just for a second. And the baby had slipped through the provider's hands and smacked onto the floor, which I don't remember hearing or seeing, but my husband will tell you it was the smack heard around the world. And that everybody- Oh, geez. 
Oh, jeez. Anyway, so my my son was totally fine. Even the pediatrician was like, "There's not an indication to do an ultrasound on his head. If babies fall sometimes, you know, in centuries ago, women would just squat out and they would come on the ground and it's fine. But in today's society, right, for that to happen, especially to a colleague's baby, was um, I'm sure stressful. So I only say all this because my colleague who I had just only known for a couple months was shaking and probably somewhat traumatized by the fact that she just dropped a colleague's baby. So I get into the stirrups, right? Cause I just had an OBGYN deliver my baby. So, you know, we're gonna have stirrups and breaking down of the bed and everything. And she's like, oh, you have a small second degree. Um, and I had a second degree with my first and that was repaired and it was fine. And so she went ahead and gave me lidocaine. She actually gave me some fentanyl as well. I was shaking so much from all the, the adrenaline and somewhere during that repair, I felt this steering pain in my back and my butt. And I sat up and I said, oh my God, did you just sew through my rectum, which seems like an incredibly traumatic and traumatic thing to say in the middle of your birth. Right. But I think that's the midwife training. You shouldn't have that severe of pain during a vaginal repair of a laceration of really any type. And she didn't say anything, finished the repair, did two rectal exams, not one, two, on an unmedicated mama, and then just left the room, left the room. So fast forward, what developed was a fistula, so a tunnel, right, between where you're not supposed to have a tunnel. And I've struggled for a long time um, with, okay, did that just happen spontaneously? But you've attended enough birth that you know that second degrees in women that have had babies before do not spontaneously tear the sphincters. And so anyways, what happened was for those that don't know, there's a suture that snagged a part of the sphincter and went through that whole, um, actual sphincter complex. Your sphincter is about four centimeters long when you're talking about external, internal sphincters and that anatomy before you get to like the rectum, right? And the track of that suture formed a tunnel of epithelial tissue that made a fistula. And that happens really slowly over time. So over the next year, I started to have uh, what they call passing of wind or gas, which is my favorite. The English call it wind. Um, and then eventually the seeds from the bread we ate at Costco started coming out of my vagina. And I thought, well, this is not right. You're not supposed to have these things come out of your vagina. So by this oh point, my gosh. I was pregnant with my third baby and I was in denial. I had diagnosed myself. I thought, surely I have a fistula, but um, somewhat in denial about that. And eventually went and got care from my team and shared with them because it's not something you want to share lightly. And I remember, yeah, I know it's intense. Yeah. And saying to my colleague, like, I think I have a fistula. And she was like, oh no, like those don't happen in the United States in modern day. And so I said, well, let me show you the pictures on my phone of what's been coming out of my vagina. And she, I will never forget her face. She was like, yep, I've got a fistula somewhere. So anyways, um, Going into the third birth, the surgeons that I saw recommended that I have an elective induction of labor. And their thinking was, we want to control the delivery of the head, a very slow delivery, right? Because I had had these precipitous labors before and possibly avoid trauma to the fistula, which knowing what I know now is um, probably not the best counseling. It would have been fine for me to deliver, however at home in a birth center, unmedicated with an epidural. But it was an experience that gave me an idea of what does an epidural feel like? You know, what is an induction of labor? It was a very short induction of labor. I think I was maybe there for five hours before the baby was born. Um, But going into baby number four, I now had these, right? Three experiences of an an induction was recommended. Did Did you choose a repair of your fistula between babies? Yes. Yes. So the fistula, I would say, let's see, I got to get the years right. So my baby was born in 2020. That was baby number three. After that postpartum period, I went and saw two surgeons. I saw a urogen surgeon who was the one that was able to diagnose it and say, yes. And she was able to diagnose it quite easily. I always feel like sometimes people are looking through the vagina and they're like, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? When they're small, they can really be like pinhole size, or you can stick two fingers through them, depending on what kind of fistula it is. And she was able to do a rectal exam and just see very easily where it was. And it's mm-hmm. small, mm-hmm. it's half a centimeter. 
it's kind of near the front of the vagina. Um, and she was like, oh, yep, it's here. And she said, I think we should do a surgery with a urogen and a colorectal. Let's bring them in so we get the anatomy right. And she told me I was a very exciting patient. And she said, I need colorectal to see you. So let me get a consult over there and we'll see what they say. And I kind of left the office and I was like, okay, I definitely have more information about what type of fistula I have and where it is, but I don't want to be an exciting patient to you. That tells me that maybe you have not seen a fistula like this as a surgeon. So anyways, I had that yeah. weird gut of like warning, warning. Anyways, yeah. I went to see a colorectal surgeon. He was amazing. He said, we do fistulas all the time. Right. And colorectal, right. They're dealing with Crohn's disease and lots of GI yeah. fistulas all throughout yeah, the yeah. And he said, let's, um, let's be really respectful of your age. He goes, you're in your mid thirties. You want to have another kid. I don't want to do anything that increases your risk for incontinence, which I don't want to be incontinent either. And I said, okay, so we, we did what's called an advanced mucosal flap where they take a, um, if this is like the fistula, they take the skin that's over here of the mucosa, they cut a piece of it out and they flip it over and they sew it. Vaginally uh, or rectally? They did it rectally. Um, he also put in um, what's called a cook, cook plug, I think, a cook. I can't remember if it's got a different name. It's the same people that make the cook balloons we use for induction, but the plug goes through like this. And so this is the vagina side. And then there's like a big circle on the back that holds it in on the rectal side. So the idea with that is it's made of pig intestine. So it helps to start the new blood vessels and blood flow and everything. In hindsight, I don't think I would have recommended that for myself. If I'm looking back, I don't think it added anything, but research has shown that it can be effective 30% of the time. And the flap itself is only effective about 40 to 50% of the time. So like I knew going into surgery, this, this wasn't a hundred percent, but it was something to possibly improve it. But short version is the surgery failed about day three after the surgery, I started having stool pass through the vagina again. And I was like, okay. And then I was depressed for a really long time, <laughs> probably for about, yeah, I can imagine because yeah. I, I'm going to, I'm probably going to have this for the rest of my life. I did, you know, this is another podcast, but a lengthy, lengthy amount of research on the different types and the risk of incontinence. If I have things like a fistulotomy or fistulectomy where they go in and they're really, you know, cutting through that tissue. Right. And remember sphincters, right. Anatomy, external and internal sphincter, right. Um, it's, it's 15 to 20% and I'm 36. That's, I cannot wear, you know, adult diapers for the next 40, 50, 60 years of my life. Um, and minimally yeah. throughout the day, I have, you know, small things that bother me, but it doesn't hurt. I don't suffer pain from it. It's just this extra hole I have where <laughs> you're not supposed to have a hole. But yeah. Also, yeah. Yeah. Similar to what you said, going into deciding, like, should we have a home birth? I was like, well, you know what? Birthing in the hospital didn't really do much for me. And my third induction mm -hmm. didn't do anything to the fistula. I think they were thinking it was going to tear or it was going to be bigger. It was exactly the same after the birth. And I will tell you, I've been in lots of support groups for people that have fistula and there are people that are recommended that they should have a C-section after they have a fistula. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that too. And, and that probably is dependent on the, the person, the type of fistula they and have. And the severity of it as well. Right. And mm -hmm. they also might. And if they've already had surgery or not, if they've already had the surgery, that's sometimes why they recommend not having a vaginal birth. Right. Um, but what I will tell you, when you start to get into it, you can have a fistula form from a regular C-section. You, you can. Mm -hmm. And I mean, people, we don't, we don't see it as much. Uh, and surgeons in the United States are very expertly trained. But if you start to read into what fistulas are and where they form, you will find that some people get them and they actually leak urine. And so mm -hmm. that's, you know, to be determined. But that's how we got to a home birth. I had all these experiences and I thought, you know what? I'm just gonna have this one at home. Welcome to the Midwifery Wisdom Collective, a community for midwives. Whether you're a seasoned midwife, just starting midwifery school or in between, we have something for you. On our website, midwiferywisdom.com, 
You can find sources of all things support, community, and education. Our collective offers a podcast hosted by four incredible midwives covering a variety of topics, online courses that range from hands-on skills such as fetal heart tone monitoring to business marketing skills and more. And we have a blog and YouTube channel that highlight a variety of educational and self-care topics. We also have different consulting options if you need more individualized help with legal advice, business, branding, and of course, the art and science of midwifery. We believe that midwifery is about relationships, both between a midwife and client, and especially between midwives themselves. And that's why we hold an annual conference and live hands-on skills sessions across the country so that you can connect with other midwives and further hone your skills at the same time. Please come follow us on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, or wherever you get your social news. At the Midwifery Wisdom Collective, we believe your self-care is just as important as the care you give to your clients. We commit to adding to your well-being as well as your professional development. Take care of yourselves because we need you. Welcome home, midwives. So how did it go? So tell us about it. Was it a great birth? Was it all you hoped for? Was there things you wished were different? I think I'm still processing it. So um, yeah, it's pretty soon, right? A couple of weeks. He's at, he's two months old. So two months old. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, Okay. So I would say the biggest things are, um, I went into labor, you know, around midnight or so. And then my water broke a few hours later. And typically my other spontaneous labors, the baby arrived within one to two hours after my water breaking. So four hours after my water broke, my baby still was not here. And we hadn't done an exam or anything like that. And I asked the midwives, I said, I, I would like to check my cervix. And that is coming from more of a place of, I just need to know where we are. And she goes, oh, we're going to convince you not to do that. And I said, no, I understand. It doesn't change anything. I do. And bless them, right? Like taking care of a midwife as your patient has got to be hard, especially one that's a little hard. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And I said, said, then tell me what you would like to do. Because to me, I am frustrated that I'm, you know, having a different labor track than I had previously. So we went ahead, we did some spinning babies. We did, um, oh, I'm like blanking on what it's called now where you do sideline and child's pose and sideline again, um, the circuit. Mile circuit, yeah, mile circuit. We did yeah. a mile circuit. Uh, we did some lift and tucks. We did some inversions. And uh, about six hours later, I had a 10 pound baby in the bathtub at home, which is the biggest baby I've wow. had. He was going to be that big. He was only 39 weeks. Like who, where did this 10 pound baby come from at 39 weeks? And I would say like everything after the birth, I mean, absolutely amazing. It was a side of birth I hadn't seen, right? You just have this team that's taking care of you. Your husband brings you a turkey sandwich from downstairs. You're drinking a ginger ale from your own fridge. You're getting your own shower, your own toilet. You're snuggling your baby, right? And they're doing all that newborn care right down into your bed. And I just thought like, this is, this is so great. So like I said, the, the first baby should have been a home birth. Um, but you know, hindsight is 2020, right? So uh, now are you back at work yet? I go back to work in a month and I'll work, I'll work for a couple months and then we are moving and I will not work for a year. So I'm trying to figure out, I mean, other than taking care of my small four children, um, yeah. I think it's just going to be a period of rest. I've thought about doing some part-time or PRN stuff. I'll probably just do more blogging. I think that it's an opportunity. Well, Jamie, we'd love to invite you to create a course on midwifery wisdom. You have so much uh, knowledge on so many levels. So we'll have to talk about that. Okay. I'm wondering, I'm wondering what you would, what, how, how this experience this this really beautiful, normal, and yet kind of extraordinary experience of having a home birth will affect your counsel of clients in the hospital or your interaction with your colleagues. I mean, you've kind of seen behind a curtain now and, and how is that changing for you? Yeah. 
I will say I have always been really supportive of home birth and birth center birth. So when people come in for their initial pregnancy visit, a lot of times they will say, we are, we are really considering a home birth. And in the military, that I feel like was something we should have never shamed because those, those mamas were paying cash out of pocket for that care, right? TRICARE was saying, Hey, we'll cover this. What I always recommended and what is, again, this is a point of contention. So there's your disclaimer. Some people are very hesitant to recommend what I call concurrent care. And that is you establish care with us, right? Your military clinic or your home clinic outside the military. We see you for one, maybe to three visits, maybe like a first, a second and a third trimester visit. And that gives us a chart and a place to connect that really makes your transfer a lot safer if you are in that 10 to 15 hours, especially those first time women. Second time moms that have had a proven home birth or an uncomplicated birth, you know. Yeah, yeah. But right, money drives a lot of the system. And I would always have colleagues that are like, you told them that? I'm like, it's not my decision where they birth. And if they're paying for a service and that service just happens to be birth, they can put their money wherever they would like. Now, you know this too. There are some people that it's probably not the safest thing, depending on their history, to birth in certain environments. But I'm not there to make that decision ultimately for them, right? That's a that's a place to share decision making where you say, okay, you know, if you've had two C-sections and now you suddenly want to have a vaginal birth, you know, there's a lot to be said there and you need to understand those risks and really have appropriate counseling. Um, and then like some practices too will support that and some do not. But I think uh, that's a really common example of women that will seek out home birth because they suddenly realize, oh, my, you know, C-section happened for this reason with the first baby. It wasn't even offered to me to have a vaginal birth for my second, even though maybe the practice supported it. They basically just either didn't want it. It wasn't talked about early on. And then baby number three, they're like, oh wait, I could, I could do this. So, you know, we have, we have a lot, a lot to improve there, but all that to say, I've always been supportive of home birth and birth center birth. I'm very quick to say in our community, these are the people that I would recommend and write their name and number down, or you can find lots of people on Google now. Um, and like on the blog, there's a, there's a state resources page that has come out of wanting to make those resources easier for women to find, especially moving around the military. You know, like every time you move, you have to find your new community and people. And it shouldn't be that yeah. Your, your birth resources. You should be able to go to one place, but we're just, the, the system's not set up that way. Yeah. 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 So I don't know, going forward, I think I will, um, I think there's also, I will, I will say this, there is a great level of respect that you do not realize is going to happen once you have a home birth of a giant baby, um, among your colleagues and your nurses. So I've had a lot of nurses be like, wow, like, did that way to go. And I think that that's really good for them to see. Like here is yeah. one of our midwives that said, okay, for baby number four, I'm going to do this at home. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And successfully and with an, uh, you know, unusual uh, circumstance. And that, that is a wonderful testimony to how the, the fringes of normal are still normal. Um, do you in your current position or in any of your previous positions ever received home birth transfers or birth center transfers, people coming into the hospital? Yes. So in Alaska, we had a lot of home births. If you look up the stats in Alaska, 25% of babies are born by our birth. It's amazing. There are so many midwives in Alaska. And so we, we had a lot of military members choose home birth and birth center birth. And I would say maybe once a month we got a transfer, um, generally from an arrest of dilation. You know, they've been six centimeters for 12 hours uh, or pain, pain management. And mm-hmm. some of those, some of those mamas had done concurrent care with us. So established with the practice, had seen our midwives. We had three midwives on the team when I was up there. All of us very much of the same mindset, birth center, home birth, very happy to recommend that, talk to you about that. And uh Every time I think it was very well received. What I will say about transfers, and this is something that is something we have to fix. We have to standardize how we transfer a patient. And mostly what I mean by that is a simple one page sheet. You've got to say, this is the 
the client I'm handing off to you. This is their history. These are the interventions done in labor. You know, this is why we transferred to the hospital, right? I know that seems like really silly, but you have to- It's not silly. And in fact, I'll interrupt and say, the transport form known as SBAR is for sale on the Midwifery Wisdom website. So you can go buy it and download it and carry it with you. So you fill it out in the moment on the way to the hospital. So you have that SBAR communication with who you're meeting. So we have that built in. And I almost wish they could like attach a price tag to it, right? If you scan this into the patient's chart and submit it to insurance, I'll give you an extra hundred dollars or something like that, right? So that right, okay, like, right. we can have- yep. Motivation. (laughs) Most of those births, they came in and, you know, we would say, okay, we understand you transferred and that was not the plan. What can we do for you as midwives now that you're here? And we did a lot of sterile water injections. We did a lot of hydrotherapy and we set, you know, realistic timeframes to say, okay, you know, you cannot be six centimeters forever and ever. Right. Um, and trying our best to figure out what happened. I would say they fall into 50, 50 categories, right? 50%. I got a really good report from either the mama, the partner, the doula, this is what happened. And 50% of the time they were like, like, we think we checked a cervix, you know, like 10 hours ago. And I think her water broke around this time. And that's, we're not, we're not looking for blame. When people ask those questions, I think that that's what people always worry about. We are just trying to give you the safest care possible. And when we're delivering safe care, right? You know, we have standards. We have standards for things. Now that doesn't mean like black and white, you have to have these interventions or a C-section at this time, but if you're gonna get safer care at the end of the day, the more facts we have about the care before you came into the hospital. Yeah, I, I so hear your perspective and I share it. I think that the, 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 the onus of responsibility for transferring care is on the person bringing in the client. Like the midwife who is transporting, they, you know, sharing proper report in a timely and efficient way with proper words makes care go so much better. And, and there are many areas of the country that are so blatantly hostile that sharing anything other than she's a second time mom who's been laboring for five hours gets them investigated. And so I understand why things are sort of half-truths or not said. I understand why midwives are hesitant, afraid to share. I'm one of those midwives. You don't know my story, but I, um, I practiced in Oregon for uh, a number of years. And during the five and a half years I had a birth center open, my birth center or myself got investigated 39 times. The only way they have the names of those clients is those are the 39 transfers. Like every time we brought anyone in for any reason, they complain to our license. So I spend a hundred grand defending myself against normal, appropriate care. Like they didn't need to be in my care anymore, which is why I brought them, you know? So I just want to say like, I so understand both sides and it's a, it's a systemic problem, even Mm -hmm. though each of us individually is affected by it negatively, right? I'm affected negatively if I'm keeping people home that shouldn't be home because I'm afraid of what I'm walking into. You're affected negatively when people bring in people that should have been in hours ago, or they don't give you full report or like, it's a mess, right? That both of these are horrible, but I think they're not the individual problem. It's the systemic problem. Certainly there are bad apples everywhere, but I would say it's both, right? And I'm really sensitive to the challenges you must've faced. And I'm wondering while we're here and on this topic, are you willing to share any any advice, any tricks, like obviously you wish that they would give at least a one page summary and a verbal report and transfer before there's, you know, quote unquote train wreck. What else makes it easier? What else can they say or do that makes that trust, that honesty, that open communication happen in a transport team? And maybe not even you specifically, but say they're transferring into doctors or say they're giving report to a charge nurse. Like are there any buzzwords? Are there any things that people that, that midwives can say that will get received? Like, Oh, they know what they're doing. Let's get, let's, let's help them. You know, I think, I think really just, it all comes down to communication. So there's a couple of system wise. One is I'm a big believer that midwives should be teaching OBGYN residents in their first year. 
right? I mean, let us, let us teach you how to manage physiologic birth and to do hand position and to sew, uh, which might again, be another point of contention. But a lot of times I think we put it, we put the tissues back together a little bit better. We generally are stitching less. Um, we just have a little bit more faith in the vagina maybe because again, we don't have the interventions of I can do surgery and I can use a vacuum and I can use a forcep. Um, well, I think some women or some midwives might do vacuum assist, but that's something I've never done. Um, and so we function in this different realm of skills and we are very good at those skills. In regards to the transfer stuff, I think what I did in my own home birth is we talked about transfer at, I think it was a 36 week visit and you have to list, this is where I'm gonna transfer to, closest hospital, preferred hospital, closest fire station, and truly the number of miles, the number of minutes that is. And I think that that conversation is really important to have. And I, I don't think that a lot of people in the hospital system realize that that generally is a standard of care in community birth to say, okay, there's, there is always a chance we could transfer. So in the event of that happening, this is what's gonna happen. The other thing that I think, and I might have to think more on this, but this just came to me is, right? We always talk about birth plans. I, I personally love a birth plan because it, it asks the family to research things about birth and learn about the things we do. Uh, what you ultimately decide to do on your birth plan, I am happy with either way, right? Like that shared decision-making, we can always come to that. But I think if you had a birth plan for if you transferred, that would be really helpful, right? So, you know, number one- hmm, Interesting. Transfer was not in our plan of care, right? And even though we prepped for it and we did a transfer agreement and we talked about transfer, we're here and this was not where we wanted to be. So we all can be on the same page for that. But now that we're here, these are the things that are really important to us. You know, if in the event of transfer for pain, we're open to trying these things, right? IV medicine, nitrous oxide, sterile water injections, hydrotherapy, and then ultimately maybe an epidural, right? Sometimes we see that for pain. Um, you know, in the event of a C-section, skin to skin is of the utmost importance to us. And I think when you come in and you just are, are saying those things in the moments where you have time, right? Usually, you know, I think people paint the train wreck and the like, you're rushing to the operating room and that's just not, not very common. No, yeah. Yeah. Not how are. Um, there's time to say, okay, like, let's talk about this plan. And then also just, there should not be any judgment. I think that we're very judging in birth and uh, we all probably can improve on that. And I think it does get better over time, but especially people that are new to birth, obstetrics, labor and delivery, and they're like, oh, can you believe, you know, room seven requested this? And most of the time I'm like, yeah, that's great. I'm like, you know, she wants to do this during her birth. That's fine, right? If there's very few things that are harmful to the mom and the baby, where I generally say, okay, this, this outright, we cannot support, but there's, there's a very good reason behind it. Um, and I think just, you know, continuing to talk about transfer, continuing to talk about home birth, continue to talk about community birth. I don't foresee that. Yeah. Evidence into that. I've heard people talk about that before where they're like, oh, we need, right. That we're so, going to what? Oh, that we could get residents, OBGYN residents into community birth, right? Can I send a resident with you to do five births so they can see what a birth is like at home? I can't see the medical schools buying into that, but I love to put that idea out there because it's disruptive to me. I'm like, listen, this yeah, might let's do it. it. Well, I, it's funny you say that I wrote, um, I wrote my master's thesis about creating an interprofessional postgraduate clinical residency program specifically to marry the CNM, CM, CPMs, MDs, DOs, family practice, whatever, bring them together. So I'd love to see it happen. I'll send it to you. I'd love, I'd love to see that happen, but, um, but I agree it's, it's disruptive and, and that's what we need to do is, is disrupt in some way. Um, kind of like so the 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 messaging to midwives in the community setting bringing clients in communication be as open and transparent as possible give them something to look at copy like see right when you walk through and continue to be open and clear and then prepare your clients in such a way and the way I talk it about is plan a plan b plan c so plan a is like what we're planning 
plan B is like all the things that you'll agree to. And plan C is when it's like, there's actually an emergency and we need a cesarean and the clients need to be prepared for all three um, because all three are possible, you know? Um, if the clients are better prepared, then there's going to be even less animosity because they're like, yes, I need to be here. Thank you. Thank you, doctor. This is what I need. And the midwife, I mean, thank you. This is what I'm here for, whatever. Um, that is all seems like really appropriate. Um, I encourage midwives to learn how to quickly give SBAR report verbally. Hi, charge nurse Mary. This is Augustine. I'm at a community-based birth and we're bringing in a client urgently. Can I give you an SBAR? And you go right into, here's the situation, here's the background, here's what I've assessed, here's what I recommend, or, or you know, what I'm uh, seeing. But I wonder if you would take this, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, the only thing I've seen, because sometimes um, we will have community-based midwives call our charge nurse on the unit, and and you can tell it's kind of a quick, like, hey, how's your unit census, you know, X, Y, Z, um, which those check-ins I think are fine. But if you're actually transferring, if you can talk provider to provider, I'm going to ask you. Yes, that's the best for sure. But there are many units in the United States that will refuse to speak to midwives. And that's, that to me is not safe standard of care. So this is the next piece of question is I was going to ask you if you can speak to any of the hospital-based midwives or nurses or folks that are in the hospital system that listen to our podcast, what advice would you give them? Because you have such this bridge, you've seen all the worlds now, worked in all the fields. What do you wish that the hospital-based system would do better so that moms like yourself, if you needed to go in, you would feel well-received and not judged and all those things. What can they do? I think the biggest thing, and, and I've seen this in Alaska, we did this, which was fantastic. I think it was called, I want to say it was the Alaska Birth Collective, but that might be another organization up there. But all of the providers that did birth in the community, in the birth centers, and in the hospital would meet once a month via Zoom. And they started it a couple years ago. I don't know if it's still ongoing. And we would talk about the issues with transfer. And then what I loved is they had three surveys that you could fill out. The survey for the, the patient that was transferring in their family, a survey for the transferring provider, and a survey for the, the receiving provider. And I think there was a fourth one. If EMS was involved at all, they would ask EMS to fill one out. And everybody filled out a survey that said, this is what went well, this is what didn't. And so we were constantly tracking how transfers were being done. And it was an amazing feedback system. So I think that across the United States, we're never going to standardize anything. It's always going to be within your community, right? And, and I think some communities are going to do it better than others, right? You know that some communities don't even have midwives. So transfer from maybe the community midwife that is the only community midwife she might have a really good relationship with who, who she's transferring to. And it also might be the complete opposite. And those transfers are the ones where, right, they have, you know, a stigma on the unit. I think the OBGYNs, and I hate to say like that, but that's essentially like a lot of what we're talking about is the hospital physicians need to know that birth happens in a variety of ways. And the mama and the baby being safe at the end of the day, that's, that's our goal we're all on the same team there for that goal. And so how can we all come together and do that better? So does that mean that you host your CPMs in the community once a month for lunch and maybe offer them some education and say, listen, if you diagnose preeclampsia, please transfer to us. We are happy to take that patient and we are happy to honor whatever we can that's in her birth plan but best case scenario is X, Y, and Z, right? If you make that diagnosis. And if you wait until she's seizing, right? We know like that's an extreme seizure is very rare, but that's the case, right? If you have preeclampsia for two weeks and it actually progresses to eclampsia, we missed, we missed a marker there that we could have exited and said, this could have been a safer transfer of care. And I think that that's, there's a variety of things, but within your community, you could decide and say, we're seeing higher trends of maybe it's, Interhepatic cholestasis, right? You see higher rates of that. Maybe you have higher rates of diabetes. You know, we want to help you manage these patients. Maybe there's some consultation that you can work out. I think that just starting to talk with them and less of this, like we see you over there and we're over here, but we're never going to actually like communicate about anything. It's not going to help. Yeah. Anybody. No, it really doesn't. And, you know, I spent, when I was working in a community and trying to build these relationships as a community-based birth center owner, um, every time we had a transport, we would send fruit baskets to the, you know, to where they were working so that 
there's more food on, you know, you're working long hours. It's hard, you know, so we would send fruit baskets and cheese and cracker platters. And we would like feed them partly the nurses because, you know, you got to make friends with the nurses. They're, they're the backbone of everything in the hospital system and wanted to make them seem seen and cared for and, you know, all that. But then the other thing is that we would invite them to come and speak with us. And I think that's a really unique and non-threatening way to involve them in what you're trying to do and get their expertise at the same time and give them a little bit, you know, I mean, it's a little bit of ego. Like I'm, I'm the expert I'm being asked to teach. Like that's, that's something, but to give them the respect and the appreciation for this different knowledge set, right? There's no, no real hierarchy. Everyone just has different zones of expertise. And we, we, we ended up finding that the perinatology groups were the most receptive. Um, and it's something like perinatology doesn't, they just don't buy into the competition because they get the highest referral from everyone. <laughs> so they're not in competition with anyone. There's usually only one perinatology group in every major city, you know, like they're just like, send us your people, anyone you've got a problem with, just like, they're not fighting you for your normal clients. They only take care of high risk. So it's a, it's a really good relationship. And they would come at least once a quarter and do some, you know, cholestasis workshop or some diabetes workshop or some preeclampsia workshop. And our communities learn so much from them that we never would have had access to otherwise. And then in return, they got to say, these midwives are really receptive. Oh, I can see that they really care about their clients. I can see that they're worth listening to when we have a referral. And then, you know, they talk on the, on the floor and they, they tell other OBs and it was a wonderful domino effect. Um, So that's why I always recommend midwives. And I think you hit on a key point there. And that is you cannot have trust unless you build relationships. You have to build relationships. Uh, I think what we're seeing a lot, what we saw with our maternal fetal medicine colleagues in Alaska is they would say, here's my cell phone number, text me for anything. Yeah. 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 that That is really common with a lot of specialties. And I wonder if we use that same language across the different types of birth environments and providers, you know, text me for anything. I have this client, we might have to transfer, you know, what's, what's going on, right? You should be able to call, you know, example for my practice, you should be able to call the midwives that are, that are on the unit and say, Hey, what's going on? Um, the other thing I think is, and this, again, this is an insurance thing. This is a hospital policy thing. I don't think we can change this, but it's worth noting when you are thinking about transfer, look for hospitals that have midwives and say, if I could transfer from midwifery care to midwifery care, that's the best circumstance, right? Amazing. Yeah. And you don't always have that option. That was something that I put on my birth plan. And she said, well, if there's an emergency, we're going to the nearest hospital and there aren't midwives there. And I said, that's fine. I'll just tell them how to do it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> are the worst. Yeah. Um, yeah, but- yeah, yeah, yeah. First choice is transfer me to my team of midwives where I know that I'm going to get the same care that I would be getting in my house, just in a different environment. Uh, so I don't know. That's, That's a beautiful problem. All of that. Well, Jamie, you're, you're, you're such a fantastic guest and I so appreciate what your trajectory looks like. Um, I know you're, you're, kind of a relatively new midwife, but you're just, you see so much of what's needed and you see the big picture and getting to travel and work in different areas. I mean, I can see what you're going to do for this profession and I'm so excited. Thank you so much. I hope that our paths cross again. I hope we get to chat soon and um, thank you for being a guest. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Jamie.